All right, gang, let's go ahead and open up our uh, Bibles to Acts chapter 7. And we're going to continue. Uh, of course, obviously, we left off in 6, which is a continuation, really, of... Uh, uh, we left off in chapter 6, which is... 7 is a continuation of that. So as we read, uh, and uh, we got to keep it in mind... That back in chapter 6, we found out that there had arisen this problem in the daily ministration to the, to, to the women who were you know, getting their daily dole. And the Grecian women, of course, were coming up short. They weren't getting as much as the Hebrew women. Now, they're all Jews. We pointed that out. It just, one followed the Greek culture and one of them didn't. But this created a problem. So what they did was, as we read, we, they went to the, the apostles and they said, look, you know, this has got to be solved. So what did they do? They said, well, you choose out from among you seven men who are full of the Holy Ghost, full of power, and men who are, you know, respected among the community. And you set them before us and we're going to pick out of those guys and then we'll anoint them and lay hands on them and set them over this issue. Well, one of those men was Stephen. And Stephen was a guy, and I pointed this out, that was a product. And you're going to see he wasn't the only one, but he's the only one that we're going to be talking about really tonight. And so, but Stephen was one who was full of the, the power of the Holy Spirit. He did miracles amongst the people. People saw this. He was a great man of God, and he certainly knew the Word of God. And, but this was a product of this thriving church that's now growing exponentially. But that's about to come to a screeching halt. <laughs> because now you've seen that the Holy Spirit has come in and he's moved these people. And these people are flocking to the Word of God. And that's what they're doing. They're coming, they're hearing the Word of God, and more and more people are getting saved. They're, they're being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Miracles are happening. People are being healed. People are being set free. Never mistake the fact that when you talk about miracles, that you can't disregard the fact of somebody being set free from things that you can't see. So often we only acquaint a miracle with something that we can see, you know, a lame person being healed, which is miraculous and, and praise the Lord for it. But some people are set free from addictions, which isn't necessarily visible. And some people are set, you know, and, and that could be all, all kinds of things. That can be a mental addiction. That can be a physical. It, it can be all kinds of stuff. So people were being set free. So great miracles were being done. And Stephen, of course, is a man who not only does he know the word of God, he wants to share that with everybody. And he wants to share that with the Jews. These are his people. They're all Jews, but now these guys consider themselves Christians, those who are of the way. We're going to see that in Antioch, they were called Christians for the first time. It wasn't really a nice term. It was a derogatory term. And so Stephen was in the way. He had come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. He was excited about it. He finally understood the law for the first time. He was sharing that, and this created a dis dispute with the council. They got upset with it. So as we read, they began to question him. And because they couldn't argue against him, because his reasoning was the reasoning of the Holy Spirit, because he had the knowledge of the Word of God. Now, now I want you to get this, and this isn't in my notes. I'm throwing this in for free. Some people, over the years, and I've been teaching the Bible for, for over 30-some-odd years. I'd have to sit and actually count it. But I've had, in those times, I've had many, many people who have come to me and, and you know, wanting to pay you a compliment or something, and, I, and, you know, and that's all fine. But they'll say, you know, I've sat here and listened to you for five or ten years. I know more Bible 
than I've ever, you know, I learned more Bible setting under you than I've ever learned. And that sounds great. My question to them was always this. I'm not trying to teach you the, the scriptures just so you can know them. You know, okay, I, I taught you the Bible, but did, but did you learn about the God of the Bible? Do you understand? We're not worshiping the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. And that's more important than anything. That as we study the scriptures, that we come to an understanding of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for each and every one of us. That's really what I'm hoping that you get. You know, there's been great emphasis, and I know it was today during service, that on the issue of bearing fruit. I love the chapter that we covered, but, you know, Jesus made some interesting statements in that chapter, one that I would have emphasized. He said, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken. It's the word of God that cleanses you. It's like taking a shower constantly. You know, it refocuses us back on all the things that God has done for us. And more than that, Jesus said in that same chapter that if you abide in me and my word abides in you. You see, it's a double imputation. You understand it's just like when God imputed his righteousness to you, your sin was imputed to him. It goes back and forth. It's the same way when he says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then ask what you will. I love that. And I've asked a lot of things of the Lord. Never for myself, but I've asked for a lot of things. Because I know his word guarantees it. He says that. But it's his word, man. It's his word. It's his word. It's his word. It's his word. We need more of it. When you can't get too much of it, you know, there's never going to be that time. Stephen was a man who was full of the word of God. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the word. It just went hand in hand. But here was my point. When people would tell me, you know, I've learned a lot from you. I would say, now, let me ask you something. Have you received the spirit since you believed? Okay, you know a lot of scripture. But is it empowered by the Holy Spirit when you're speaking it? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you can quote the scriptures, and if it's not empowered by the Holy Ghost, it's going to sound like somebody reading a book. You ever get the book on tape or on CD where you hear the guy or the author just reads it, you know, and it might sound okay. But boy, when you hear the Bible being spoken, the Word of God being delivered to the people of God by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, then things happen. People change. Its miracles are produced that way. That's what we need. You know, It's that power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Stephen is going to illustrate for us so beautifully tonight. Now, there's a cost to it. There's a cost to it. Because when you're open to the direction of the Holy Spirit, sometimes it can be taken the wrong way. Sometimes people don't like the truth, gang. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it will make them very, very upset. So these guys could not resist Stephen's wisdom. Why? Because he wasn't just quoting Scripture. Oh, he was doing plenty of that. But he was doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for the first time, and no doubt in my military mind, that when Stephen was baptized in the Holy Spirit, that the scriptures became fluent to him. All of a sudden, everything that he had learned began to make sense. I love it when Jesus took his disciples up on the hill. You remember that? Right towards the end after, after the resurrection. It says, then opened he their understanding to the scriptures. These were men who he had taught for over three years. They knew a lot of Bible, but boy, when the Holy Spirit opened up, then opened he their understanding 
That's how you know that the Holy Spirit's really working. When you can, you'll be talking the scriptures and, you'll, and all of a sudden you'll go, oh yes, and Isaiah, I, now that makes sense to me. Oh, and that relates back to Jude. And oh my gosh, I never saw that before. And all of a sudden the scriptures are open to you and you go, what a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. And it begins to flow and you see it. And then all of a sudden you go, man, I've got to show this to, and you get on the phone or you're at work. You go, hey man, have you seen, let me show you this. I've got to share this. That's how fruit is produced. Simple equation, gang. If you go to an apple tree, you get what? Apples. You go to an orange tree? Oranges, right? You go to a Christian tree? Christians, thank you. It's just that simple. Christians produce fruit. What's that fruit? Christians. And it's only done by the power of the Word, or the Word of God with the power of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's going to prove this and what fruit he will produce. But something's going to happen first. Let's look at verse 1. Then said the high priest, because as you remember, they had accused him falsely. They said that he had blasphemed against the temple. He had blasphemed against Moses and said that the temple was going to be destroyed, that Moses was, that they were going to do away with the law, and he got them all worked up. And so the high priest says, are these things so? They've got him there. They're questioning him. The charges against Stephen were trumped up. They, you know, the trumped up. They called it blasphemy. This man's blasphemed, you know. Now, remember last time we read, it said right at the very end of the chapter that they looked at him and his face was like what? That of an angel. A man at perfect peace. They're accusing him of some really... They're accusing him of stuff that's in their mind is worthy of death. I want you to keep that in mind. Stephen knows at this moment, he knows the shaky ground that he's on. He knows. He knows if he keeps going that it's not going to end well this day. He knows that. But yet his face shone as it was an angel. He had perfect peace because what he was speaking was the absolute truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And nothing can shake you when you're walking in that kind of truth. Nothing's going to shake you. You're not going to be worried. What shall I fear? Well, I'm not going to fear what men shall do unto me. If God be for us, who can be against us? He, he knew this. So they said, are these things so? As I mentioned back in chapter 6, the charges against him were false, but kind of true at the same time. What do I mean? Well, the fact is, is I have no doubt that Stephen, of course, listening to the teachings of the apostles, realized that Jesus had totally completed. He had totally fulfilled every prophecy, every law, because he realized that Jesus had come and lived this life vicariously for all of us. He knew that. I have no doubt that he taught that. Well, to them, that was, well, you're preaching against the law. You're saying that the law is done away with. I have no doubt that Stephen said, well, the, it's not done away with, but it's fulfilled. We no longer have to worry about it as a means of righteousness. Now our righteousness is through Jesus Christ. I have no doubt that he said that. But they come in and they begin to twist and to distort. Later on, Peter, as we get to, to, the, to the writings of Peter, Peter will say that our brother Paul in his epistles, in which he speaks of some things which are hard to be understood, which the unlearned and the unstable twist and distort to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. 
People who don't want the truth will often listen to what you have to say, that you're speaking out of love and truth and, and the Holy Spirit. And because they are not receiving it, they begin to twist it and to say, well, this is, and, and put words in your mouth. And this is what they were doing to Stephen. I, but, but once again, I have no doubt that Stephen had spoke the truth, but they weren't receiving it. Proverbs 6, 6, uh, you don't have to turn, I'm going to read it for you. Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19. I think that this is really what the Sanhedrin was holding against him. I think this is what they were trying to say about Stephen. I think they looked at Stephen, they saw Stephen, they heard what he was saying. Now keep it in mind, these guys were in power. They saw the multitudes of people coming to Christ. Remember, he kept laying the fault of Jesus' crucifixion right back at their feet. They're not real happy about that because they realize there's truth in what he's saying. They're the ones that said, let his you know, blood be on us and our children. But what they were really con you know, trying to justify their action was I believe they were trying to, uh, to uh, attach to him this moniker of a dissenter of a person who was sowing dissension among the brethren. You understand what I'm saying? I just want to read this for, to you. It's out of Proverbs. Now, this is my humble opinion. You're, you're, this is just my opinion. But I really do believe that this is what they were inferring. They don't, they're not quoting it. But I think this was the verse that they were using to justify their, their prosecution of Stephen at this particular time because they just didn't want to receive it. So I think they were using this as their justification. In Proverbs 6, 6 uh, 16 through 19, here's what it says. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that are swift to running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. See, they looked at what Stephen and the apostles were doing as sowing discord. They were disrupting the Jewish church. They were inflaming people. And the next thing you know, the synagogue isn't as full on Saturday as it had been. Because these boys began, remember, when after the resurrection, they began to gather on the first day of the week. So some things had begun to change. I'm sure many of them still went to the synagogue on Saturday. And that's perfectly okay. God didn't tell them they had to meet on the first day, but certain things changed. Why? Because they were no longer under the law. And somebody said, you know what? <laughs> I got a few things I want to get done Saturday. Hey, man, Jesus done took care of it. You know what? Let's get together. What a better way to start the week. Because Sunday, you know, you'll hear some people talk about Sunday being a Sabbath. Not so. Saturday's always been the Sabbath. Sunday's the first day of the week. It's a new beginning, you see. And so they began to do that. But I think that they looked at these guys and they're going, man, these guys are just, they're just stirring up the pot. They're trying to make everything. And so they're sowing dissension among the brethren. I think this is really what they were. And, and the crazy part is actually this proverb fit them better than it did him. It fit them to a T. They were haters. They were 
proud. They were liars. They had hired people to even, you know, perjure themselves against. They, they were cheats. They, were, they had done all manner of evil. And so really, Proverbs 6 was more descriptive of their position than Stephen's. Look at verse 2. And here's what he says. So Stephen starts his discourse. And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. Now, this is going to be an interesting discourse because what Stephen's going to do is because the Jews put an awful lot of stock in the fathers, okay? Mainly Father Abraham. And to this day, they still do. Well, they've written songs about it, many of them, many, many songs. And, and so they were looking at it. So Stephen knew this. This is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So what he's going to do is he's going to go right back into history, and he's going to take them right back there. Verse 3, and he said unto them, and he said unto him, God did get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Karen. And some of your Bibles may say Haran, which is the same, same. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into, into this land wherein you now dwell. And he gave him no inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised, him, promised that he would give it to him for a possession. And to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. So Stephen begins his defense before the council. <sighs> And like I said, I'm sure that he realized that ultimately this would culminate this day anyway with his death. I think he knew it. I think the Lord had already settled that in his heart. He knew he wasn't getting out of this place alive. Because everything he was saying was going to just inflame them, which is exactly what happens. I think it's strange. If you ever see somebody, if you've ever been around somebody who's been angered, if that you've angered, by telling the truth... If, you, if you've ever spoken the truth in love or just told the truth, and you've ever been around somebody who just vehemently does not want, I've never seen that kind of anger. It's the most evil looking to me. I've seen it. I've been, I've been a recipient of it. When somebody gets angered about the truth, there's a venom that comes out of them. It's just, you know, this is when people get killed. This is when people are trampled upon in, in, in all kinds of manner of evil. It's just, it's crazy, but it's, this is what these guys are displaying. They just can't handle what is being told to them. And so Stephen starts his defense, and he goes all the way back in history. The Jews are buffs on the history, man. They, they love history. They love genealogy. It's very important to them. And so he takes them right back, and he brings their attention how God had called Abraham out of the land uh, to his father's. Uh, from his father's house and told him to go. And so he sojourns in Quran until his father died. We talked about that as we were going through uh, Hebrews. And so God had promised him the entire land. Now, Abraham did not personally gain any inheritance in it, except for this small cave 
that he had bought when his wife died. And he needed a place to bury herself. It was the only partial property that he wound up having in it. And so it's the only thing that he had as a possession. And so after this, God had told Abraham that his seed would go into the, a strange land where they would dwell for 400 years, at which time God would deliver them from the land and would lead them into the land that he had promised, and that God would judge the nation that had made them serve in the bondage of slavery. Now look at verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and, and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And delivered him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So the Jewish people, like I said, are fixated on history. And so he takes them right back. You know, he, matter of fact, the, the strange part is, is like, I'll tell you how fixated on, on history they are. These guys are so fixated, like if you go over there right now, there's a, a, a cave, at the, the cave of Machpelah, okay, and where people, they'll still gather there to this day. You'll see people, they believe, the Jewish people believe, that if you go to the tomb of a dead person, a righteous person, okay, that the Spirit of God still dwells there. And so if you want to get close to God, you go to the tombs of these righteous people and you can actually get closer to God by being around their tomb. Uh, when you go to Jerusalem, you'll, you'll see the tomb of David there. And at any given time, the elders, the old men will gather there at the tomb of David at all hours of the, of the day and night. And why? Because they're trying to get close to God. And they believe that the spirit of, of the Lord is about this place. I've actually seen some of my Pentecostal friends who believe this same thing, you know. And I remember one, one guy talking how he would go sit on the grave. And I won't even bring up her name, but she was a famous uh, Pentecostal preacher back in the day. And she had died and this guy would actually go sit on her grave because he still thought the Shekinah glory of the Lord was like, and it would like, you know, metamorphose or whatever through the ground into him, and he would gain wisdom by sitting on the grave. You won't find this anywhere in Scripture, gang. This is just what they believe, okay? Because the Bible, in its most simplistic form, says what? Draw nigh unto the Lord, and he will draw nigh unto you. How simple is that? You know, how do you do that, Doug? We're doing it right now. We're drawing nigh unto the Lord through his word. You know, it's so simple. And once again, you know, but this is how they are. These guys are, they're really just ate up with, with the history of genealogy and, and this spiritual stuff that's not even really spiritual, to be honest with you. But this is what they, they really believe. So they think they're getting closer to God. Stephen's going to show them that the history of their followers is not as illustrious as what they want to believe. You know, history is often in the hands of the historian, okay? So often there's been many people who have written books on history and have come to the conclusion that you can't trust a history book because it's at the mercy of the person who wrote it. And there is truth in that. No doubt there's truth in that. But we don't have this problem with Scripture, <laughs> 
We know that the scriptures are accurate just because of the way that God has preserved them. That's a whole other sermon for another time. But they're fixated on it. And so he shows them that their fathers were not as, 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 as great as they want to believe. Due to the envy, you know, that they had for Joseph, you know, of course, all the brothers had sold him into Egypt. Thus, they had rejected Joseph and, 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 and really everything that God had wanted to do with him for them. And so they turned their back on him. Now, look at verse 11. Now, there came a drought over all the land of Egypt, of Canaan, and a great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. You notice Stephen keeps saying, our fathers, our fathers. He's not just saying, your fathers. He's saying, our fathers. He's, he, he's making them see it. This is his point. He keeps repeating it over and over because he's driving it home to them. Our fathers, our fathers. It's actually, for those of you who are Bible students, okay, it's really a good sermon point, to be honest with you. A good sermon will always take the points and repeat it over and over and over. Why? Repetition makes remembrance. So anytime you're trying to talk to somebody about Jesus, keep it on target. How do I do that? Take your point, have it settled in your heart first, and then just keep repeating it. You know, use it in, you know, use it in context. This don't sound like a broken record, but you know, Keep it, in, keep it in context, but this is, what, this is what Stephen's doing so accurately by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our fathers, our fathers. He keeps driving it home to them. And so, verse 13. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all of his kindred, Three score and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried into Shechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Now it's interesting, you know, because he says that there was about 75 of them that went down. But by the time they come out, there's millions of them. That's it's always amazing to me. You know, that whole reproduction thing. 400 years makes a big difference. I had a kid one time tell me, you know, because we were going through the book of Genesis, and it says that, you know, that uh, Cain went into the land of Nor and, of course, built a city. He goes, how could that even be possible? You know, how many kids? I said, well, it's called exponential growth, my son. You know, that's why when God told him to go forth and multiply, you'd be shocked at how many men. And so I took him on a mathematical journey. I'm not going to do it tonight. But it's very easy to show that how many millions of people can come from a very short period of time, really. Just in a matter of, of, of 50 or 60 years, you can have an enormous amount of people with just two starting. So, but that's a whole other thing. So, what verse did I leave off on? 14, thank you. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all of his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. And he and his fathers and were carried into Shechem and laid on, I know I'm repeating, but we'll do it anyway, uh, into sepulcher. At, and Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, God, which had sworn by Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till a king arose which knew not Joseph. So I want you to just notice that 
Stephen passes over Joseph when he's talking, who was sold into slavery and rejected by their father. Stephen rightly points out that this is the first example of a mistake that their fathers made of rejecting a God-ordained leader. This is what he's trying to show them. Now, in, in type, typology, Joseph is a Christ type. And you, you, you can see him in it. Why? Because Joseph, when you look through all the Old Testament guys, okay, and women, you'll find that Joseph is the only one that you can't put a flaw on. You can't really point to some big gaping mistake and sin that he committed. Matter of fact, just the opposite. Now, I'm not saying he was sinless. Do not get me wrong. I'm telling you in the type, it doesn't point out any sin in him. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Joseph, in, in this type, actually appears to be a very righteous man. I mean, to the point where he, you know, he defended his own virginity. He ran, and God upheld him. And then every place he went, even though he was falsely accused at Potiphar's house, God, you know, I mean, the Lord was with him the whole time. So he's a Christ type. And so God had anointed him and ordained him to be a ruler, but the fathers, our fathers, rejected him. And this is what Stephen is bringing out to these guys. So that was the first mistake. So he goes from that, goes from Stephen, now, or, or goes from uh, Joseph. Now he's going to move right into Moses, talking about Moses. Verse 19, because remember, he was accused of blaspheming against Moses. So verse 19, and the same dwelt, or dealt subtly with our kindred. And evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. Now, you, you probably remember the story that when Pharaoh gave the order, his order was for all the Hebrew males to be killed, babies, the babies, and for all the girls to be kept alive. Now, how he told them to do that was by casting them into the Nile, okay? This is what they were told to do. So Moses' mother, at great risk, I would assume, to her own well-being, kind of defied this order for three months. And then she takes Moses down to the Nile, but she makes this ark out of bulrushes. Now, if you go back to the Hebrew and you look at the bulrush, it is a papyrus reed, a papyrus reed. And papyrus is actually the thing that they use to make paper. It's their type of paper. And all the scrolls at that time, uh, except for the Valium, but at the, the cheap stuff, I'll put it that way, was made out of papyrus. The whole law was written on papyrus. Now that's very interesting to me because here you have Moses as a baby who later on would we call the law giver. And when his mother makes an ark, she makes an ark out of papyrus, which is very prophetic in his future life, because it's actually going to represent what he's going to do with his life as God's going to use him to deliver the law to the children of Israel. I just always think that that stuff's interesting to me. You know, there's three arcs that are mentioned really in the Bible. Just throw that out. Remember, there's the ark of Noah, 
there's the Ark of Moses, and then there's the Ark of the Covenant. And every one of those, when you go look, and we will as we cover those, we'll look at what they're made out of and how, and it's all prophetic. It's just so, you know, you can't make this stuff up. It's just God, man. It's the way he does it. Look at verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, if you take a note, you need to make note of that. It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffering, suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that he was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed, and I want you to make note of that word, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. This is, this is a cool passage, man. This is amazing stuff to me. Moses supposed that they would understand that God had placed him in this position. Now, here he is 40 years old. I'm assuming he's probably being an Egyptian and being a leader, a prince of Egypt. He's probably in peak condition. They always did that. They trained every day. He was a man of privilege. He was a man who had grown up in the schools of Egypt and in the wisdom of the pharaohs. Moses was this great, great guy. He was, he, he was in a prime position of power. You know, he had everything. So when it came into his heart, he supposed that all of a sudden these guys would understand that, well, certainly they, they're going to get that God has called me. Look at my status. I mean, who's better suited to help them out? Why? Because he could have, you know, he could have negotiated their release with the Pharaoh because, well, he's a prince of Egypt. Who would be better for that? And I have to admit, if you just look at the outward circumstances, I could say, yeah, sure. At that particular time, it would have been a great opportunity for him to do so. But that's a mistake. This is a mistake on Moses' part. Never look at your circumstance. <laughs> you know, this, this is what I'm throwing in for free, man. Never look to your circumstance as somehow God has gifted you at a particular time. God will gift you at a particular time in his due time. But so often we think that, well, you know, I've got this ability, I've got that ability. I think a lot of times God will choose you to do something that you have no ability to do. And he will gift you in that particular ability at a given time so that you can stand up and go, I don't know why I'm doing this, but God has given me the ability so all the glory goes to Jesus Christ. Because if it wasn't for the Lord, you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you know, but go I. And so those type of things. But Moses really, he supposed, he really thought that they would understand. They did not understand. But a lot of people really believe, and I've heard Bible teachers, they kind of think that somehow Moses didn't understand his calling. I want to point out one thing to you. Moses understood his calling. And he knew it from a fairly young age. I don't know if it was from the time he was 40 or earlier. It might have been even earlier. He understood that he had a calling. He kind of got ahead of itself. Why? Because he wanted to fulfill it. So he goes out there, he sees these guys being oppressed, his brethren, okay? And what's he do? He commits murder. Why not? That's what you do, right? That's when you want to help somebody. Let's go kill someone. I mean, that's, that's what he did. I mean, here he is. Now, he goes from being a you know, prince of Egypt to being a murderer. 
Hollywood always gets it wrong. When you see the Ten Commandments, which is, you know, it's a great movie, but it's so, there's so much of it that's so not true. And it's not even, it's just speculation. But one of the things that they speculated that I think they might have gotten right was how infuriated Pharaoh was when they found out all the stuff that Moses had done and, of course, had committed murder and everything else. Why? Because they felt betrayed. They, they had taken Moses in, if you will. Moses was one of theirs. He was in a position of trust. He was in a position of power. And so now he's out, of course, and he sees these pharaohs. But God had changed. You know, here he, he realizes he's got this calling from God. And he wants to go out and do something. And so he sees the oppressed. And so what's he do? He takes matters into his own hands. He kills the Egyptian. But Moses understood his calling. His timing was a little bit off. But look at verse 26. It says, And the next day he showed himself unto them as, as they strove. Now he finds that they're, they're fighting. And would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou did also the, the Egyptian yesterday? Now, I was telling my wife when I was preparing my notes for this. I said, you know, I want you to understand. It. When I was a kid, I grew up with six brothers. Or five, five, five brothers, but six boys in the family. And if you did something that you knew was, you know, punishable by death, Okay. And just about everything in my house was punishable by death by my father, okay? He's just the kind of guy he was. He's just the way he rolled, okay? You did something punishable by death. It was capital. Everything was a capital crime, okay? So when you did something and your brothers were witness to it, okay, now this placed you in a very vicarious situation. Why? Because now you were the slave of the one who had witnessed the wrongdoing, Okay? And it was even stated, okay, you will be my slave and you will do what I want you to do when I want you to do it or I will tell dad. Okay, and the thought and the threat of dying instantaneously at the hands of my father was great, thus you submitted to slavery. Now, anybody who's ever served in slavery knows that he gets a little tiring after a while. Then you start weighing the options. Will, you know, will death really be that bad, you know? Maybe it's not as bad as, being, as serving in bondage. So my brothers would push it and push it, you know, and after you've went and got them a Coke down at the store for the hundredth time, you're tired of it, you know what I mean? And they're making you clean their room and do their homework and do anything else that they can think. And so finally you go, I'm not doing it. I ain't doing it. What? What do you mean you ain't doing it? I'm, I'm not doing nothing. I'm done. Really? Dad? <laughs> Dad? And they would start yelling for dad. And so the next thing you could shut up, man. Okay, fine, I'll do whatever you want. That's kind of what's happening here, except they're not hollering for death. This guy's he's, he's basically saying it loud. Are you going to kill me as you did the, the Egyptian yesterday? It freaks Moses out, man. It freaks him out. Verse 29, then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian where he begat two sons. And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness on the Mount of Sinai an angel of the, of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. 
Now, when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and did not, and, and durst not behold. He, he couldn't even look at it. Then said the Lord unto him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, if you're taking notes, you need to mark these words. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt. I have heard their groanings, and I am come down to deliver them. Man, I love those words. And now I am come down to deliver them, and I have come, and I will send thee into Egypt. <laughs> Back in Hebrews, we learned that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm glad for that. Because we're told here that God says that he sees the affliction of the people. He hears it, and he has come to do something about it. That is just as applicable today as it was then. You know, so often we find ourselves in, in the, the, the bondage of slavery of some sort or an affliction of some sort or of some problem of some sort. And God says, I have seen, I've heard, and I have come to help. He's still saying that. He's still doing it. It was not just for the children of Israel. Yes, in our narrative to, to, to right at this moment it is but it's also for us right now. It's never changed. God is the same. I've come to help. I'm sure that Moses was excited after God said, I've seen, I've heard, and I've come to help. Until he heard these words, now I'm going to send you <laughs> into Egypt. I love that. <laughs> you know, so often, you know, because the Lord, I still think God has a bit of a humor. Because, you know, I, I do. I think he's a bit, a bit humorous. And I think that, you know, because Moses by this time, gang, is how old? He's 80. 80. 80 years old. So if you think that somehow you're past the, 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 well, Doug, I'd like to do something for Jesus, but I'm just, you know, I'm 75. You're a kid. Moses was 80 years old. Well, they lived longer back then. Well, they didn't live that much longer. I'm telling you right now, Moses was an old man. He was not a kid. I hate those movies. It's like the Prince of Egypt, those cartoons. They got this 26 years old. He looks like standing before. Even Charlton Heston was only in his like prime 40s or something. No, it wasn't like that at all. He was an old man. We can always make excuses for our age. Why we can't? No, man. Sometimes God doesn't even start your ministry until you're 80 years old. So you know what? Hey, some of us might, you know, we might be right on the brink of, of some big breakthrough that the Lord's going to do. But God says, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to come, but I'm going to use you to do it. I've, I've, I've heard. I've seen. I've heard. And I've come to help. And I'm going to do it through you. That's amazing to me. God picks. Here's this guy who had been a prince of Egypt. At one time on top of his game, at the prime of his life. You know, there's an old Toby Keith song, Back in My Prime. 
You know, there was a time back in my prime, you know, but here he is at 80 years old. Now Moses had to think, I'm sure it went through his mind, that why didn't you do this back when I had prestige, when I had leverage, when I had privilege, when I had the means of doing something. But the problem was he had pride. <laughs> he had pride. You know, he prided himself on what he supposed that they should have known that God had picked him to deliver them. God doesn't pick you at the prime. God wants to take you through the desert to soften you up a little bit, humble you. What's the Bible tell us? God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. You know, it's amazing to me that God wanted to use him. Here he is, an old man, a sheep herder by this time. He's got, what's he got? What's he got left in life? He's got a stick. That's what he's got. He's got a stick, a wooden stick. And the Lord says, you know, even tells him, if you go back and read, we're not going to get to that tonight, but just to throw it in to remind you, you know, he tells Moses, you know, Moses says, Lord, I have nothing. I'm a man of stammering lips. I mean, he couldn't even talk right by this time. He was st a stutterer. And God said, what do you got? Well, I'm We've got a stick. <laughs> I'll use that. I'll use that stick. God will use whatever you have. Listen, I was telling a pastor here a few weeks ago uh, in another town. Me and him got in this discussion. And he's talking about abilities. And he's... <laughs> Because he was, you know, he heard me play, and he's listened to me online, and he's, you know, he saw my, read my book, or, you know, he said, he, he said, man, you have a lot of abilities. It's, it, you know, it's no wonder you're good at ministry. You have a lot of abilities. And I said, well, stop it right there, brother. <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm telling you right now, anything I do, I'm doing, and I have done because of God. But I said, more than your ability, what God looks for is your availability. Because God can produce the ability. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. So it's your availability that God's really looking for. So often people will say, well, I, you know, I just can't do things like you, or I can't do things like her, or I can't do things like somebody. No, God's not asking you to do that. God's saying, do you have time? Do you have time? Once again, it's not your ability that God's after. It's your availability. So just be available. You know, how do you do that? You say, here am I, Lord, send me. Why not? He could use you just as much as he could use Moses. You know, and so he, he does. And so Moses had a stick. God was going to use it. So, verse 35. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And so here he is, you know, first, back, you know, 40 years prior, they pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler? Well, God did. But it took God another 40 years to get him where he was pliable, where God could use him. I remember one time, just as an illustration, you know, when I came to Christ, you know, my, you know, I went to a tent revival years ago in California. I was 13 years old, and uh, some of you probably know my testimony, and I, I got, you know, saved, I guess, uh, when I was 13, <clears throat> it might be questionable. I'm not sure, but I meant it at the time. <laughs> Sorry about that. And it wasn't, uh, 
I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't earth-shaking for me. It wasn't life-changing. Because I went right back in everything else. But as I came to the Lord in my 20s, and as I really got serious, you know, God began to do a serious work in me. And everything just changed. Um, my desires, the way I saw things. And I, I can relate to what happens in Moses' life. And I can see the things that he goes through and the stuff that he suffers and the, the stuff that God wanted to do with him. But he had to humble him first. And so as I come to the Lord, my point is, is that as I came to Christ, I realized too at a very young age that I was called. It's in my book. I, I really believed from the time I was basically a toddler. I could feel the calling of God all my life. And so here I am in my 20s. I've I'm, I'm, I'm been through a lot of things. And the Lord is uh, using me. And I, how to explain this? I have no idea why that's doing that. Um, but it really broke my chain of thought. But anyway, let's move on. We'll edit that. 35. So Moses was refused. And they say, you know, who made thee a ruler and a judge over thee? And God did send him to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which he appeared to him in the bush. Stephen has just given them two great examples of their fathers rejecting God's anointing. And so, as you might remember, Joseph had that dream. Remember, he had a dream, and, and of course, uh, where the sun and the moon and the stars all bowed down to him and worshipped him. And, and uh, then he had the dream where they were tying up the sheaves and all his brother's sheaves bowed down to his sheave. And, and he was all excited about it. And not his brothers weren't so much excited about it. And they were really ticked off. And, of course, they turned on him and, and wound up selling him into slavery. And so all of his brothers were just wretches, to be honest with you, the way they entreated him. And so now the same is true with Moses. They rejected him as, as their leader. Moses thought that they should have known that God was going to use him, but they didn't, and they cast him out. And so 40 years later, God would return Moses uh, to the people as a ruler and as a deliverer for Israel. So Stephen uses these two examples of their fathers uh, not recognizing God's ordination of men that they had chosen to rule over them. Uh, but this is the pattern with the children of Israel. You see it in the Old Testament over and over again. Verse 36. And he brought them out that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Once again, you look at Moses' life and you can break it up into 40-year periods. The first 40 years he was in Egypt. He was in the schools of Egypt learning to be somebody, someone special only to be in the backside of the desert for 40 more years, realizing that he was nobody. For the last 40 years to lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, proving that God takes nobodies and uses them to do something extraordinary. So it's the humble that God uses. God resists the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. So Moses, his life though, is just broken up in those 40-year periods, which I think is pretty cool. Verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him 
in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give to, uh, unto us. And so you'll notice he uses the word church here, which is interesting. And, uh, you know, really nowhere is the house of Israel ever known as the church. It's an interesting term that he uses here that Stephen does. It's a Greek word. Uh, you know, uh, uh, ekklesia is what it is, and it simply means the called out ones. And so the children of Israel were called out of Egypt. And so he's using that as that word. The church now, of course, in the dispensation of grace under this, this era of grace that we're in, is anybody who is called out, who has given their life to Christ, you're now the church, the called out ones from the world. So this is what it is now. And so he says that it was in Mount Sinai that Moses was given or he received the living oracles. I love that. They're living oracles of God, the living word of God. You remember back in Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living. It's powerful. You know, God has exalted his word even above his name. So often we have, a, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he, we have relegated it to the back burner, if you will. The church in general just does not put the emphasis upon the Word of God that we need to put it on. So what? We don't see the power. We don't see the miracles. We don't see a lot of things. We don't see exponential growth like what we're reading in front of us. Why? Because the church of Jesus Christ for some reason thinks that they can do it on their own. The fact is, is that the Word of God is what we need. We need more of it. God says He has exalted His Word even above His own name. And if God exalts his word above his name, how much more should we do that? It's really a challenge to you and me, I think, is you know, how much word is enough when all it tells us about is the love, grace, and mercy of God and how much he's done for us and how much he wants to do for us. And that's really what we need to hear more than anything. Now, especially in the time that we live, when you look around and you see all the craziness, you know, especially over this last few days and you listen to the evil that comes out of people's mouths and I was watching this debauchery that they called some sort of march and I'm looking at all these women with their little babies and and these signs that they're carrying and making their children carry signs with vulgar sayings and and all kinds of wretches you're going man this world is nuts you know worse than anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. What's that tell me? It tells me we're close to the Lord's return, you know. And it, it, and it really is something to be looked forward to because I see those things and I just chalk them up as a sign and I realize that a lot of people say, well, you know, there's always been, well, I don't think to this level, you know. The, 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 the disengagement of reasoning when you hear these people speak, they don't even know what they're mad about. They, they, like I said, when you want to see somebody who's angered, if you see somebody who's angered about the truth because they just don't want to receive the truth, it's a very evil-looking thing. you know. So we need to pray about that situation. But more than that, we need to pray, but we also need to preach. And we need to start witnessing to people and take what God has given you. Take that word, share it with other people, you know. And, and get out and tell people, because really, I'm telling you, the Lord's coming back. It's, it won't be long. And, uh, but whether it's in my lifetime or not, 
Every one of us sitting here and listening by radio, every one of us is going to have, if we don't go in the collective rapture, we're all going to have our personal individual one. Some way, shape, or form. Because death is coming. Or we're going to go in the rapture. But either way, we're going to have a personal, personal meeting with Jesus Christ. And that's either going to be the best day of your life or it's going to be the worst. Make it the best. How? Put your faith and trust in Him. Get into the Word. See all that Christ has done for you. As we get into the next chapter, of course, we're going to finish this up next time. But as we do that and we get into chapter 8, read ahead and, and, and begin to look at what happened with Simon the sorcerer and what an interesting man this guy is. And suddenly, there's people who are in the same condition. We're going to talk about that when we get to it. But for the time being, those of you who are listening by radio, I want to encourage you. If you haven't made it right with Jesus Christ, accept the free gift of salvation. It is not something that you want to put off. Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. How do I do that, Doug? Ask. And it shall come to pass, as we read in the book of Acts, that in the last days, which I believe we're living in, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's really just that simple. But do it today. Father, we love you, and we thank you for this time and opportunity. We just ask, Lord Father, that your word would go out, Lord Father, and that people would come to know Jesus Christ. We ask for your blessing upon these who have come out, Lord Father, and those who weren't here tonight that wanted to be here. And we ask that you bless them and just let them know that we were thinking about them. We are so appreciative of all that you do for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.